Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Trevor. And together, we're We're Occasionally Interesting, interesting. the podcast where a couple travels the world interviewing the most interesting people they meet along the way. Sometimes it will be sweet, often entertaining, rarely conservative, frequently informative, occasionally occasionally interesting. interesting. Occasionally interesting. Did you know that Padre, who is our guest today, was a DJ? Yes, I did. Would you like to do your your intro? Your DJ intro? This is the radio voice of the University of Pennsylvania. 88.9 on the FM dial. WXPN in Philadelphia. Woo! Shout out to all those XPN listeners. And that was probably in the wrong order. It's been a long time since I've done that. But the trick to announcing in Philadelphia is it's not Philadelphia. It's Philadelphia. I thought you said that weird and I Philadelphia. Like, you had it? <laughs> not sure consonant in there. Philadelphia? Philadelphia. 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 It rolls off the tongue much better than Philadelphia. I was just it's all tongue tied. <laughs> Who says it like that? <laughs> me. <laughs> Dave Conant taught me that. He was the program director at WFLN in Philadelphia for many, many, many years. What was your radio show? It was a morning show. Rock and roll, top 40, top 40 rock and roll show. I was Wild Willie Crow. You were Wild Willie Crow? Wild Willie Crow. Can we call you that from now on? You may not. (laughs) Yeah. Wild Willie Crow. Wild Willie Crow. And how how did you land that gig? I was the program, I was on the board of directors of the radio station. That helped. Uh, And nobody else would get up that early. (laughs) Remember, we were dealing with undergraduates. So, How early was it? Uh, I think I started at eight. That's not bad. Oh my god! <laughs> Undergraduate. Undergraduates say that they they double get up till the crack of noon. Crack of noon. That's so were you right. were you always a morning person then? No, no. But I would get up to go to the radio station. When did you become a morning person? Uh, probably, probably as a result of being in the navy. Yeah, you get used to having. No specified time for when you sleep. You learn to sleep when you can. And that's clearly stayed with you in life. Yeah, it's definitely stayed with me all these years. That's a fantastic skill. Yes. yes. It's also a uh, skill that your cousin developed during World War II. That my cousin developed around World War II? During World War II, yes. Who's his, my cousin? Yeah, cousin? Winston Churchill. Yeah. Would you like to explain Wait. the uh, connection? There? Cousin is not cousin. The right your great term. great aunt, or my great great aunt, something like that. Was, I wrote it down somewhere. Was Jenny Jerome's mother's sister. Jenny Jerome was Winston Churchill's mother. So we go from Winston Churchill to Jenny Jerome to Jenny Jerome's mother to her sister, and then down the female side of my chain. And your chain. So somehow you end up being her, his fourth cousin. The fourth cousin 
sometimes removed. <laughs> yes, yes. I've never quite figured out what that's all about. Yeah. The removed part is the child is a generational thing. Oh, okay. So once removed is your cut co- is your cousin's children. That that's your first cousin once removed. Okay. You say so. Good lesson. I'll I'll believe anything you say. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, it's his fourth cousin because Churchill's his middle name. (laughs) Because Churchill's his middle name? That's how you get a cousin? That's how you get to be. That's right. I've suspected that was the case for for some time. All right, well, let's let's go back to the beginning here. Okay. You were born in Ithaca? I was born in Ithaca, yeah. And that might be where where the blue in your blood comes from. The fact that you were born in Ithaca, the blue in my blood. Well, you grew you grew up in Rochester. Yes, which was very red. It would be red blooded. Red blooded. Republican. Uh well, it's it kind of floated back and forth. Rochester. Yes. yes. Really. Yes. Why? I, uh, How does well, that when I was a, when Rochester I was... is a university town. There's a lot of education there. Yeah. My best friend was the son of the city manager. When I was in high school, I remember the headline. The axe, the axe, the axe has fallen in City Hall. It's when the Democrats took over. So somewhere in mid high school, uh, Rochester, Rochester flipped from the red side to the blue side. That's interesting. What precipitated that? I have no idea. It was not made all political at that age. Hmm. What year would that have been? Sixty thereabouts. Okay. When did it flip back? Don't know. I got out of there in '64 and never looked back. Did you? Why do you say it like that? Like with a with an air of a bit of disdain. <laughs> well, ma- many of us refer to my home t- or my my town, my hometown, as Crotchfester. <laughs> so, so. Clever. And uh, the the view was that the the best view of Crotchfester was from the rear view mirror of a automobile and uh, i subscribe to that rochester is very cold and gray mm-hmm. and, uh, and did you grow up in rochester or, yeah. or the surrounding area in 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 rochester in the city of rochester in the city of rochester okay westminster road what was the affluence like there um well in those days rochester was pretty Comfortable. There was a lot of industry there: Xerox, Bosch and Lomb, Kodak. Uh, really? Yeah. So I didn't know. I lived in a very middle class neighborhood. We were neither rich nor poor. Uh, my parents came from. They were both. They came from a farming background in, outside of Ithaca. Hmm. What made them move to the city? Uh, when Dad came back from World War II, he was uh, he was very sick, and somehow he got a job with uh, the Rochester Gas and Electric Utility Company in Rochester while my mother was pregnant. So he went over. He he left Ithaca and went to Rochester, and I was born in Ithaca. Lived for four days in Trumansburg, and then moved to Rochester. Mm. So when I go to the festivals 
the grassroots festival in Trumansburg, and people were ask me where I'm from. I say I'm a I'm a native. <laughs> Very nice. I lived there all my life at one point. <laughs> <laughs> what was the What was the expectation around college for you and the general public at that time, as opposed to today, where you know everybody's pushed to go to school? Well, it's probably more for it for me personally. It was probably more like it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother had been uh, uh, an athlete, went to the same high school. Uh, he was a uh, on a winning football team and uh, was recruited by Syracuse University and chose not to go, went to the, into the Navy instead, much to the disappointment of my father. What was the motivation for that choice? My father wanted him to go to college. <laughs> he was so just he being was defiant. Like, <laughs> Pretty much. Interesting. My brother was an alcoholic uh, by the by the time he was fourteen. Um, I feel like you could drink more at college than you could in the navy. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, that's probably not true. <laughs> you know the old song about. What do you do with a drunken sailor? What do you do with a drunken sailor early in the morning? Yes. The Navy is a great place to drink because you have uh, periods of enforced abstinence to kind of get well, get back on your feet. And then when you come in into port, well, you've been at sea and you've been defending your country. You have every right to, to drink. So it's quite a... Uh, Reinforces alcoholism, for sure. And so then, how did you decide to join the Navy? Uh, I was walking across the campus one day. Of UPenn? At at the University of Pennsylvania in 1966. Now, when we had arrived on the campus in 64, right after the Gulf of Tonkin incident, and I remember my first week of school, talking to my fellow students and we were we were expecting that the this little problem in Southeast Asia would certainly be over by the time we graduated in 68 uh, it couldn't be possibly last four years well pretty clear by 66 that that was not going to happen and uh as I was walking across campus, I, I found myself in front of the Navy ROTC building. And so I was curious. And I went in, and there was a chief petty officer at the front desk. He asked me why I was there, and I explained that I was interested in checking out Navy ROTC. To which he said, well, we, we just had a cancellation. The captain had an appointment, and... So if you'd like an interview with the commanding officer, you can go in right now. Do you think that was a clever line, or do you think that was real? No, I think it was for real. And a lot of people were clamoring to get into the Navy at this point. Why? Because they didn't want to go in the Army. Huh. We had a draft. Uh, interesting. Navy, Navy was a way to stay out of the rice paddies. Wow, that's interesting. And, uh, but that, that wasn't really my motivation. I was just sort of curious about the whole thing. And uh, when I walked into the captain's office, we chatted for a little bit, and he said to me, 
well, son, why do you want to join the Navy? Well, obviously I had was not prepared for that question. So I just looked at him and I said, well, my dad was in the Navy in World War II. My brother was in the Navy during Korea. The Navy is just the thing that my family does. And uh, with that, the captain smiled. He said, well, son, that's the best answer to the question I've heard in a long time. <laughs> and he invited me to take the exam uh, to uh, join Navy ROTC in my junior year. So you were already in your junior year. Sophomore. I was a, I was a sophomore. sophomore. And then you joined. Yeah. When did you When did you enlist, I guess? Is that the right term? Yeah, yeah. Um, they they had two programs back then. There was a four-year program and a two-year program. So two-year program was your junior and senior year. So I went into the Navy the summer before my junior year. How had you been paying for college up until that point? Uh, I was on scholarship, and uh, my parents were paying the rest. And I was working summers at the gas company. That's one of the things I've been curious about in this political cycle. What I've been hearing from several candidates is that you used to be able to afford college on a on a summer summer job. You know, this this idea that you could work your summer job and you know a part time job during the school year and, and afford college. If you were a high school student, a good student, uh, you could easily earn a Regent scholarship, which would pay you good share of your tuition. So I would say if you were, if you wanted to stay in state and go to a SUNY school, that you could probably uh, do that. Maybe not tuition probably. If you chose to live at home, mm -hmm. you could certainly pay for it by uh, what you earned in the summer. I was, I was going to school out of state in what we refer to today as an elite university. Who's that? And uh, so it was a little more expensive. Uh, Do you I, remember how much it cost? $1,700 was the t tuition. $1,700 a semester? Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> it wouldn't even begin to cover housing. I think that might have included room and board. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was like a housing for a month. Yeah. Jeez. Well, you got to remember, my dad in those days earned uh, $12,000 a year. Hmm. So. Wait, what? Yeah. Okay, $12,000 a year, yeah. $1,700 a semester. It was a couple couple of months' salary, so. If you think about that proportionally, though, that's still very it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my mother went to school, well, I went back to work while I was in college. She went to work for Sears Roebuck. Hmm. And uh, she, her paycheck in my summer work probably covered my tuition and board. Yeah, I worked summers. I didn't work during the school year, uh, which is very common now. It's common mm -hmm. then too. But and you were comfortable. You could you could eat. You could drink. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I joined a fraternity, and that made housing and drinking very affordable. <laughs> <laughs> Tip for all you youngsters. <laughs> yeah. How was it joining a fraternity? It's great. Um, I was at a you know I was on an Ivy League university, 
Japan is a big, big place. And I was in a small fraternity. Hmm. So I had the kind of a, uh, the community, community feeling of being in a small place in a large university. Uh, I thought it was ideal. I started off as a chemistry major and ended up in electrical engineering. Uh, so you had lots of choices. You know, most kids that come to school, that's with one idea about what they want to do and they change their mind. And being at a big university makes that really easy. Uh, going to school in Philadelphia was, was really great. Uh, I had a lot of uh, my buddies ended up at these uh, verdant uh, college campuses like Dartmouth and Cornell and stuff, and we're out in the out in the beautiful places. And they would come to Philadelphia, and they would love it because they had a very active social life and a, a city where you could get around in easily. And they really enjoyed visiting me at, at, at school. Especially dating life. We had a we had fraternity parties, of course, on the weekends, and we had locust walk. And all the girls from the, the city of Philadelphia would come down to Locust Walk on the weekends. All the girls from the all city the of girls. Philadelphia? All the girls. I felt like all wow. the girls. There were a lot of girls. And uh, if you needed a date for Saturday night, you could walk out on a Locust Walk. And Just grab one? Grab one and say, hey, you want to go to a party? And <laughs> that's what they were there for. <laughs> wow. Uh, that was uh, that was quite a treat if you were some from someplace like Dartmouth or, <laughs> you know, it was in the middle of nowhere. It's probably quite a treat, no matter, no matter where, where you're from. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we had uh, two nursing schools, right? Philadelphia General Hospital and uh, Penn had its own nursing school. Penn I, was also co-ed, right, at this time. Penn was co-ed, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, uh, it was a very fun social life. Hmm. So, what was the determining factor that ultimately led you to join the Navy? Uh, Vietnam War. So you supported the war? I did. Why? Uh, my country was at war. Do you do you still? No. In retrospect? <laughs> no. At what point so, did you change your mind? By the time I actually deployed to, to Vietnam, I had uh, changed my mind. Oh, shit. That's got to be yeah. awkward, <laughs> to say the least. Um, what... what, what could you could you explain more of my country was at war? I realized that you know now we've had several missteps as a, as a country and wars, and uh, it's easier to look back and be like, well, you know, maybe you should question that more. But wasn't there any ounce of being like, well, why the why the hell are we over there anyway? And, well, there was yeah, there was a lot of that going on. I mean, the the anti war movement was already in, in well in in force. Um, what did that look like? Was there activity on Penn? Was oh, there, yeah. Was it, yeah, yeah. Could you give us some uh, historical context? Were students getting shot by this point? or No, but there was one student that got his butt dropped in the trash can. Do tell. <laughs> there, was a, uh, there was a big demonstration going on, and the uh, Philadelphia riot police uh, came down to sort of break things up. And I was working for the radio station at the time and uh, had my back to the police 
holding the mic, uh, audio equipment, recording uh, what was going on, when a phalanx of police officers came down on 36th Street, and I was in their way. And this big burly police officer just simply picked me up, gently, and uh, there was a trash can right there. He just dropped me into the trash can. <laughs> well, all things considered, that's not so bad. <laughs> uh, when I was at, uh, I don't remember the year now, but uh, Johnson announced that he was not going to run for re-election uh, while I was there. And that brought everybody out, out of the streets. And we were, why was... we were celebrating the end of the war. Mm. Mm. Again, like my prediction in 1964, it was, it was not a well-founded prediction. <laughs> it went on for quite a bit longer, but... We thought that that meant the war was over. I was already in uniform by that time. How did you like deal with public slash individual perception of you now that you in your in your position you were no longer pro-war, but here you were representing the opposite of what you believed? How did you deal with people interacting with you? Did you make? I, I didn't have any. At that point, there was no us versus them kind of mentality yet. Uh, in fact, I never really experienced that. I know that when uh, when people came back from Vietnam, uh, that there was there were problems. Uh, soldiers were harassed. Uh, my guys weren't. I wasn't. Uh, so I never really experienced that part of it. That's nice. I'm still curious about the psychology of joining, jo joining, making such a serious life choice yeah, that has tremendous consequences, not only for you, but for other people as well. Life and death consequences. Right. Just didn't think about it though, in that way then. Was it being young or was it being well, part of it's caught being up young, in the... And part of it's, you know, my dad was in World War II and he was 35 years old. He... He had done his military service in the National Guard, had uh, a wife and two kids, was 35 years old, and he volunteered to go into the Navy and uh, spent the war in Japan. So it was, it was just uh, a mindset that if your country went to war, you, know, you showed up. But clearly, your sons haven't been raised with this mindset. No. This <laughs> they certainly haven't. <laughs> they were opposite. told that if they were drafted, we'd be we'd be moving to Canada. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good. Well, so that's a that's a huge departure from yes. your earlier mindset. How what was the how did you get from point A to point B? It evolved. It wasn't a there, I, there was no defining moment. One day I said, "Oh my God, one of my shipmates." I was in active duty by this point. One of my shipmates, we, we were getting ready to deploy, which meant going to Southeast Asia. And uh, Chet was a was a communications officer on the, on the ship. And he decided he didn't want to go to Vietnam. He also was one of the officers that held the keys to the nuclear arms locker. Uh -oh. 
And so he announced to the captain that uh, he would never authorize the ship to use nuclear weapons. And so the Navy very quietly sent him home. Oh, that's kind of a convenient way. That's a smart way. That was a very smart way because they, you know, this would the press would have loved this. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. And so he was, he was nicely done. Yeah, well, Chet worked, went to work for AP uh, Associated Press. Yeah, yeah. He worked there for many years, so he was very savvy about uh, how to get out. And uh, I decided to follow him out, and he talked me out of it. He said, "You, we can't have." In today's language, we can't just have red people in the wardroom. We needed some blue people in there too. So I was the the Voice left wing reason. peacenik in the in the wardroom. You have previously mentioned a time was returning returning from where they had heard a, like the broadcast of the news of can't students speak. being shot yeah. came over, and yeah. there was a particular reaction on the ship. Yes, yes, that was probably the. Uh, Hard to talk about still. What was the reaction? We had we had we had we had left the combat zone. We were on our way home, and once you leave the combat zone, security drops, and so they put armed forces radio on the speaker system in the ship, and they announced that the National Guard had fired on students at Kent State, and with that, a cheer went up. Throughout the ship, I was in the I was in the combat information center on watch, standing under this speaker, and I just remember standing there, just listening to this broadcast, and hearing what was going on around me, and just wondering what the hell was I doing here. It's pretty terrifying to think about. Yeah, it was very terrifying. Uh, I'd had a few other experiences before this that were not quite as Poignant. I was in front of a radar scope watching standby. Our ship was standby for uh, air control, and we were bringing back the, the aircraft carrier was bringing back uh, planes that had just flown over Laos. And I was reading a uh, Time magazine where the President of the United States had announced that we were not active in Laos. <laughs> so. I knew that was a lie. Wow. The Kent State thing was just the, that was the culmination of just a lot of negative feelings about what I was doing. Because hmm. I, I definitely agree with uh, Chet's general philosophy of limiting evil can often be a more positive thing than doing good. Being in there, in the, if you can stomach it as an individual, being in the trenches with the bad guys with the bad philosophy and trying to limit and control the damage so it's an incredible thing not that i'm yeah but in reality i mean how much you know what, what could you really like what what would happen to anybody with an alternative perspective like there's a certain mass that uh would need to make it there's a culture behind that there's enough people around you cheering at that that you go you know and i'm sure that probably there were some people cheering that were just like got caught you know we're like wow this is i guess we're cheering now you know but there's a critical mass there i mean and you see it today in in the police and in the, the military 
we've watched some of those uh, released videos of the airstrikes that have been called into question, and you hear the conversations okay. um, talking just, I mean, they're, they're despicable, how, how we're talking about killing people, I mean, killing civilians in a lot of cases, killing women and children, and the just the disregard for, I mean, and there's a culture behind that. And it seems to me that armed forces, any, anything that gives you a gun, seems to attract a particular type of culture. More so today, I would imagine, than in Vietnam. I think it's getting worse. And I don't think that you could necessarily combat that by injecting a small amount of opposing viewpoints in there. Well, certainly, the military was a much broader section of, it was a different, different cross-section of our population than it is now. Uh, everybody that was in the service uh, had the specter of the draft hanging over them. So if you were in the Navy, you pretty much consider yourself lucky that you had escaped the draft. Or you, we also had people who really wanted to be in the Navy. Interesting, though, uh, last year my ship celebrated its, uh, my shipmates celebrated the 50th anniversary of the commissioning, commissioning of the USS Summers. And I met some of my shipmates that I hadn't seen since Vietnam. And I was really amazed at how many of them had devoted a particular, significant part of their life to uh, activities that I would not have thought they would do. Such as? Well, one of the guys who was, uh, who was, I have to classify him as a redneck. I mean, there's <laughs> really no other way to, to explain it. He was a warrant officer. He was... Uh, he was, you know, he hated those freaking hippies and, you know, that kind of stuff. And he, uh, he now wanders around the world uh, collecting people like from Syria and Israel and takes them on mountain climbing trips in Nepal. Uh -huh. uh, and he's, he's, he spent a lot of time in his life bringing together individuals from different cultures who are typically enemies and uh, getting them to know one another. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's probably the, the most extreme, but all my shipmates were involved in some kind of activity like that. My commanding officer, who ended up being an admiral, he worked with children as a volunteer all his life and really did a lot of... Uh, Great stuff. Why do you think that is? Well, I think a lot of us like we're service oriented. You know, we served our country. Uh, we we did it because our country called us to military duty. But it seems like a lot of those fellows, that call was there even when they left the service. So they continue to be active in community building and, and other other activities that were non-military, but still I mean, would go under the caption serving their country. 
when you look back at your life, what would you say are the defining uh, like turning points or characteristics or events? Well, the biggest one is getting sober. When I came back to Vietnam, I was I was on my way. And, to uh, getting sober? No, to getting oh. drunk, getting, getting seriously drunk. Okay, I was going to say, it's the opposite uh, of everyone yes, else who yes. came back from Vietnam. I was kind of a... a you could still probably uh, classify me as a social drinker when I was in the Navy. Uh, it wasn't uh, a daily thing. But uh, when I came back to the States and I got my first job, uh, I discovered the activity of going out for drinks after work. Mm. I see, I thought the party was over. Been in the Navy, I'd been through college, now I'm married, and it's time to settle down and go to work and do all the stuff that married guys do and then drinking going drinking after work was I was introduced to that particular activity and that became a very important part of my life for until I got sober how many years was that about 20 20 20 holy shit <laughs> uh, at least 15 I guess 15 it would be, would be more accurate 15 about 25 when I got out of the Navy, and I got sober when I was almost 40. Wow. So I was probably drinking, I was probably in a bar for those 15 years, probably an average of uh, up to 40 hours a week. I probably spent as much time in wow. a bar as I spent at work. And yet... You say yourself and everyone around you, nobody looked at you and said, this man has a problem. Well, at least, not, at least they weren't saying that to me. I mean, in retrospect, at any, when you became sober, I know that, sober, that, anyone... that my wife's parents uh, were concerned about my drinking. They never confronted me with it. Did they confront her with it? Yes. Uh, and she dismissed it and thought it was okay? Yes, she just thought that's, you know, Bill comes from a different culture than theirs and... They're, they drink. And... A different culture. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Drinking was normal in my, in my world. It's an interesting point. That makes me think about being Irish. If, like, it is absolutely, if anybody finds out you're Irish, that means you're supposed to be, you know, wasted a good, a good majority of the time. Well, you're a member of the CIA. <laughs> what? Catholic, Irish, oh. alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Number one turning point, getting sober. What are some other ones or main events of life? We'll come back to this one. All right. Uh, well, when I was married the first time, I, I, was, uh, I lived across the street from a guy that uh, owned the uh, Honey Baked Ham franchise. In oh, wow. In, in uh, Philadelphia. Oh, uh, just one store, not the whole thing. No, the whole, the here whole the East Coast. <laughs> the East Coast, yeah. And uh, I remember standing out on the back porch drinking a beer, watching this guy. He had a 12-passenger van. I don't know what the hell they used it for, but... He had hams big, in every seat. I guess they had this, this big van. And what this guy would do on the weekends, he, would, he had a bunch of kids, he would, he would pile his kids in the car, in this truck, and they would, they would drive around the neighborhood and they would fill up the truck with other kids. And he would take them off to the park or ice cream or something like this. I thought, hey, this is the craziest son of a bitch I ever saw. 
why would, why would he do that? And then I started having my own children. And then uh, one day I was, in my second marriage, I was driving with, uh, down to uh, Maryland with my kids in the car and the dogs. And I suddenly realized that uh, some of those guys that used to sleep in our family room, I don't know how we got all these kids in this one car, two dogs and, and a collection of kids. And I realized that uh, I was this guy, that I had uh, the most fun in life at that point was being with uh, all these kids. And, uh -huh. Yeah. So I don't know exactly whether, when that happened, but it definitely, it definitely was a different perspective on the world than the, the guy that sat on the front back porch with a beer in his hand. Okay. Um... What are some uh, life lessons that you've taken from AA that you think everybody should apply to themselves, no matter what their relationship to alcohol is? Well, we've been talking about that over the last few days. The short answer is uh, my friend Francis. St. Francis is... Uh, uh, the St. Francis prayer is uh, one of the tools I use to get sober. Uh, in AA, we have a green card and you carry this little card around with you, and it has some of the, it has the 12 steps of the program and uh, the Serenity Prayer and the St. Francis Prayer uh, on it, along with some other things. Oh, I still have it on the, on the refrigerator at home, and it has been my guide ever since, uh, ever since I got sober. The prayer is basically a, uh, a list of choice. I, I view it, anyways. I view the, the the prayer as a list of choices you have in any situation that requires a, a decision. So I can find one of these one of these couplets that apply, and then I try to apply them. How does the prayer go? Well, <laughs> what you should ask, because <laughs> I used to have it memorized, but I don't anymore. But the, rather than say the prayers, I would just use the. The, the choices. I wrote them down this morning. Uh, he talks in, a, in, the, in the prayer about choosing between hate and love, injury and pardon, doubt and faith, despair and hope, darkness and light, sadness and joy, being understood or understanding, and uh, receiving or giving. And uh, the stuff on that left-hand side of the list is sort of the dark side of the list, and the stuff on the right side of the list is, the, is where I try to go. Don't always make it over there, but uh, Francis has made it quite clear that uh, in any given situation I have a choice, and those are pretty much that. So I try to pick the the right one. Hasn't failed me yet. Hasn't failed you yet? Yeah. Green card also have Abraham Lincoln on it. A man yes. is about as happy as he yes. makes his what mind up say? to be. Uh, That's the one, right? Oh, a man is about as happy as he makes up his mind to be. I think it's worded slightly differently, but Yes, yes. Yeah. This is remember I did a I I did a big large format 
poster of the green card, like I lettered, yeah. I lettered, it, had that hung up for a while. Well, we also, you know, what AE stands for. I'm afraid this is going to be a trick. Yes. <laughs> What's the trick? What? A lot of people think it's Alcoholic Anonymous. But it's really attitude adjustment. Oh, nice. <laughs> I like that. Yes. So, yo, they should call it that. That would, I, I feel know, like you'd attract. A, as as yeah. Trevor says, the biggest problem with Alcoholics Anonymous is that it's a bunch of alcoholics. <laughs> it was called attitude adjustment. <laughs> you get a more diverse uh, group. I think everybody everybody needs the lessons of AA. Yes. But. Well, that's why the 12-step programs, there are lots of different 12-step programs around. I mean, it seems to me if they just removed, I mean, we all have vices. We all can have the, the potential to allow those vices to start to control us, which is really what you know, leads us into leaving, leading lives that, and making decisions that go <laughs> counter to who we actually are is because we're now allowing something else to control us. And this is something that we all succumb to at one point or another to different levels. And it becomes a habit. And breaking that habit can be difficult. And if we removed the fact, like, we, we, now what happens with AA in a 12-step program is you pick a fault, you pick a vice, and you say, well, let's, let's focus on that and try to tackle that and change that, which is great. It's a great effort. I don't, you know. But... You know, the, the program's built pretty well, and if we just sort of removed all that, like, you know, it's the same thing that religion sort of tries to do, just in a different context. They try to do it from this, you know, historical moral code, which is is now outdated. It's, it's, it's being rejected because there's so much background there that people are, and, and I think that's kind of, you know, there's, there's pockets of people that are now, um, but it's got too much baggage, and... AA, you know, you take AA onto it and it's got baggage. And I think that there's a spiritual crisis in our country. And that's part of the reason why it's in the shape that it's in right now is there's nowhere for people of my generation, and I'd say, you know, plus or minus a couple generations, uh, to turn to for spiritual guidance. We've rejected the church because we've, you know, we've been news and pedophiles and, and it's, not, it's not for us. And there's nowhere to really turn that we feel welcomed. And I think that's going to be a very important... If, we're, if we are to recover as a society, we need something to fill that gap. It's one thing to be intellectual. That's fine. That's great. But that it doesn't necessarily solve some of the more spiritually oriented questions. And I think that there's a thirst for that, that that our generation doesn't know where to go to quench. And unfortunately, a lot of them are turning to opiates, and you know, there's a huge epidemic of addiction in our country that, that has exploded recently. I mean, it's worse than it's ever been. Um, there's reasons for that, and part of the solution is coming up. And that's not, that's not the only problem, you know? Addiction is a symptom of a larger issue. And our country is really sick. And if you removed the stigma from AA, you'd have a really good, you'd have a really solid foundation for the type of program that teaches people how to live lives that are, you don't need to feel guilty every day for the decisions that you've made in the past. You, you, know, you, don't, you don't have to run away for who you are. You have to take life on life's terms. I, I'd like to see some sort of movement towards a program like AA that recognizes that, you know, there's 
there's there's a certain logic to appealing to a power higher than yourself, however you define that, whether you define that in community, in God, in, in your dog, whatever. <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it would be nice to see that change. I don't know if it will. I haven't seen any. I haven't seen any indication that this is going to become something that. But in lieu of that, I don't see anything getting better. I mean, there's really. You know, we're on the precipice of another war at this moment in time. Another war. Like, it's easy to forget that we're in one, you know? Like, we could be really fucked. I, I think AA is a great, great solution to a lot of the ailments that we're facing. A spiritual crisis. I think the other avenue that, that a lot of people take is religious fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. I spent quite a bit of time with uh, a group of men, evangelical Christians. Our, our politics are certainly not aligned, uh, but I had uh, a great respect for these guys and, and how they integrate their faith into their lives. I was quite surprised to find out, find that part about it. But one of the things that, that I also discovered in looking at religious fundamentalism is we have a thirst for simple answers. Mm. And the world's not simple. Uh, uh, often there's not clear choices, just like there, were, there wasn't in Vietnam. And uh, we eschew the time and effort it takes to listen to people we disagree with and find a, find common ground. When I was with the evangelicals, I was across the street from my church, which is a Episcopal church, which is certainly in, in Christianity. It was at the left left hand side edge of of Christianity, and these guys were evangelical Christians from the far right. And they would often, both groups would talk about the other group. And uh, as I found, as I traveled back and forth across the street, that both groups were mistaken about how they viewed the other group. And my conclusion was that uh, we should spend more time crossing the street than staying in our own, our own side of the ledger. And we've lost the ability to do that anymore. We have red states and we have blue states and we have Democrats and Republicans and we don't talk to one another and we don't compromise. What do you think is responsible for that polarization? I have no idea. What do you think is the solution to that polarization? Like, how do you get people to cross the street? I think the only way you get, to do, get them to do it is do it yourself. Yeah. We have a responsibility to. Uh, Is there a way that the average person? Actually, Justin's book, Justin, Julie's friend Justin, I can never remember his last name. Uh, he's written a couple books about about how to be a liberal, living liberally, uh, and he has some great advice in the book for exactly what you're talking about. And I go to the coffee shop every morning, and. Uh, we talk politics in the car and coffee shop. Uh, Terry and I have uh, 
soup night once a month. You know, you're not supposed to discuss politics over dinner. Well, hell with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we invite we invite conversations about uh, politics and race and religion. How come we've never been invited to one of these dinners? Yeah. This is bullshit. You're <laughs> <laughs> you just started having them. Well, I mean, and this is why I think the average. So there's there's people that you can have those kind of conversations with, and there's people that you can't have those kind of conversations with. Well, the important people to have a conversation with is the ones that you can't have the conversation with. Have it anyways. Let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> I suspect that these uh, dinner parties are filled with the, the 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 type of people that you can have these conversations with, though. And that's what I mean. How 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 would you recommend? You know, the average. The, you know, like is is there is there a, a recommendation for? the average person to be able to start crossing that aisle in a, in a generic kind of way. Well, it's interesting you say that because we have one guest in particular who reminds me of my dad. He's a nice guy, but he's a racist. And uh, he has some opinions about race that, that, that we certainly don't agree with. And he says things that make us wince. And recently, I wasn't there. But Terry went out to dinner with them, and uh, he said something, and she took issue with it. And not argumentatively, but just let him know that she did not agree with his opinions. I think that's because we had developed this relationship with these folks. They've been to dinner, and we know them well now. And uh, She took the risk of saying this wasn't okay. Now, that might not change his mind, but it could very well change somebody else's mind. One of the things I discovered in AA, I would, uh, over the years, I've tried to introduce people to the program. And so I'll meet someone who's in need of the program and invite them to a meeting and meet them there. And uh, my failure rate is 100%. I've never had anyone actually show up that I invited to meet me at a meeting. And I was sharing this. Did they originally say that they will meet you? Yes, yes. And invariably the meeting is exactly the meeting. The speaker is exactly the right person for them. It's just uncanny. And so I would, I was, I've complained about this over the years many times in meetings. Mm-hmm. One day a fellow came up to me after the meeting. He says, I want you to know something. I've heard this Whitney before. You've 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 complained about this before. And I was in I was in, in my first AA meeting when you said this. And uh, he said I decided I didn't want to be one of those people. And so I decided to come back to my second meeting. So the guy I was trying to help, uh, I didn't help. The guy I least expected, uh, I, I did. So I think that when we when we reach out and we uh, try to help someone, uh, somebody gets helped. If it's just ourselves, but yeah. we're not in charge of who gets helped. Our higher power uh, is, and we just carry a message that hopefully somebody will hear.
Be the change. Make the, what's it? Do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. Work it. It works if you work it. <sighs> Keep coming back. Yeah. <laughs> Do the next right thing. Is... Yeah, those simple, yeah, those cliches are uh, powerful. Yeah, they really are. I think that's one of the consistency and those reminders is powerful. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then you said something like, the answers aren't simple a couple minutes ago. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. You can complicate them if you want, sure. But that doesn't really change the fact that the answers are actually indeed very, very, very simple. There are things like the essence in those quotes of do the next right thing. You know? And it is sort of easy to know what the next right thing is. If you take it, it's the next right thing and not where is this going to lead you know, a day, a year from now. It's, what do I do in every single moment that, that is right? And it's not all that complicated. It very rarely is ever complicated. It might sometimes be hard to see the forest through the trees. or. But I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I mean, just like the choice of do I go to war <laughs> Yeah, you can throw on all this cultural context and all these different... But at the end of the day, the, the, it's really not that complicated. You know, like, you know, do you allow gay people to get married? It's not really that complicated. Does everybody deserve the same opportunity from the get-go? You know, like, yeah, yeah, they should. Like, None of it's that complicated. Do you have a rebuttal? <laughs> No. I think in... I mean, that's what the St. Francis prayer is about. Given any particular dilemma, there is a solution. And in especially in retrospect, it seems like the answer is, is pretty simple. The thing about your Aunt Kay, my sister, she had an abortion in her last trimester. Uh, late-term late -term abortion. And most people agree that that should be... Well, a lot of people who are pro-choice will even agree that late-term abortion is, is a problem. But my sister had a particular dilemma. Her doctor said she had two choices. She and the baby could die, or the baby could die. Seems pretty fucking cut and dry. Uh, now, the choice seems pretty clear, but for the legislature the, who's trying to write a law about abortion that, that is uh, fair, reasonable, how do you allow for late term abortion when it's necessary? It's funny that you pick. The abortion is the as the rebuttal because I think if there was a rebuttal to that, abortion would be it. Because there's no, there's no, in my opinion, no no moral authority from which to appeal to to say when is it, when is a child a child not a fetus and when does a group of cells become sentient and and worthy of of rights and and we all just make it up. There's no other explanation for it, is you make it up in your own mind, in your own moral code of 
when you determine these things happen. And from that, I, I, I have a certain respect for people who are pro-life and that they've made a choice. That's their choice to make when they determine that this is a child. You know, I think that the conversation in a, in a, in a societal you know, aspect of how do, how do you then impose your moral code on other people? And that's, that's where it becomes cut and dry, where, you know, pro-choice, pro-choice all the way. You don't get to determine other people's moral codes in that regard, since there is no moral authority to appeal to, which says that this is one way or the other. We don't know. You can have your moral, sure. Don't have an abortion, then. Have the kid. Try to give it as good life as possible. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's other ways to have that argument. But I think that is the one, one area where it's like, if you want to be consistent in your opposition to, yeah, as you see it, killing babies, I respect that. Well, the flip side of that coin, and I, I, I don't know, what I'm about to say, I'm not, it's, I'm not, I'm not sure is 100% accurate. But what I understand is that in China, a baby doesn't become a human being you know, with the protection of the state uh, until he is separated from the umbilical cord. So a baby can be can weave the womb, uh, and if it's killed before the umbilical cord is cut, it's not murder. It's an abortion. That's sort of the extreme of pro-choice. You know, you get to check the sex and say yes or no, let the baby, let this thing live, not a baby yet, uh, or not. And most people who are pro-choice would be appalled at that that, 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 that that's a choice, that that is the logical conclusion of pro-choice to the max. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's why it's a difficult, you know. That's what I mean. People, people like to come up with all these, well, you know, but at the end of the day, you're just choosing arbitrarily, as you probably don't like to think, about when this is a, a kid now. You know, like it's we all do it for our own selves. I take a whole different tactic in how I determine to be pro-choice of societal outcomes of you know. It's just better when we have abortions. Everybody wins when we have abortions, like, except for the kid. But you know, the, the more abortions that we yeah, have, yeah, right. That kid does win because the kid would have been born into an unwanted home and raised the terrible life, the common yeah. criminal, become but, a drug addict. You know, the, the, the flip side of that is, well, you know, a shitty life's better than no life. Is it? I don't, I don't think so because then they try to kill themselves through drugs. That's all there is to it. I mean, like, yeah. statistically speaking. But I think that the more abortions we have now, the less abortions we'll have later. You want to get rid of yeah. abortions, we'll have abortions. Well, I think I'm pro-choice because I think the choice should be whether or not you are pregnant or not. And that, that's what is missing from the pro-life politically. They tend to be against contraception and you know, things like that, uh, sex education, which I find to be very uh, short-sighted. You really want to have we really don't want to have abortions, don't have unwanted, unwanted pregnancies. That's, yeah. that's a very simple, and, and certainly whatever your view is about when life begins, uh, if it never starts, uh, abortion's not necessary. It is a very weird psychology that, let's not teach them about sex, 
or what the possible outcomes are. And you'd be surprised with that education, how much that lacking of education. There's people that like, you know, I've, I've talked to people who said they didn't know that you could get pregnant from like, like they're, that's, that's wild. That's and also people who think you can get class. pregnant from absolutely everything. Yeah. Like I didn't know what you could get pregnant from. And like, that's, it, people in my nursing class, in my, in my cohort of people that didn't know, and she had a kid, mind you, you know, <laughs> so there was, that was how this yeah. came forward yeah. in the conversation of, you know, she was, she was a little bit older than me, but she was talking about how she wound up as pregnant as a teenager. And part of it was a lack of, of the main reason was a lack of education. I mean, that's pretty wild to consider. And then, I mean, what, where do you think that comes from? Why would you not want to educate people about a fundamental piece of life? Because they're keeping it in the shadow and the darkness. I mean, they don't want to... Why? Where does that come from? Why does it have to be in the shadow? Why, why would it ever be in the shadow? Why would... Like, why something is... that's, by all means, it's healthy, that's why? like, you know... Gets you dopamine. I mean, there's, there's it's exercise. Like, why would you? Why is it such a touchy subject? I mean, I think we've learned that historically, that's probably been really uh, propagated by the church. It's propagated the right word. That's why people of my generation are skeptical of that church. I don't think we're going to figure out the right uh, today. The right? The right? The red. The red people. Yeah. Those other people. Yes. as I, I'm One of our uh, podcast listeners requested that we please have more unreasonable people on the podcast. Mm-hmm. That everybody we have on is so uh, thoughtful and uh, reasonable and interesting. <laughs> we need to have some more crazies on here. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> I feel like it makes for much less interesting conversation than you might think. Yeah. It's hard to find somebody who holds those viewpoints that I can have a like conversation. I said, I mean, you know, if if your explanation as to why you didn't want to vote for Obama is because you didn't want a nigger president, I don't. There's nothing I can say to you that's going to make you change your mind. There's not. There's not some sort of enlightenment that's going to come from our conversation. You know, maybe me being in close contact with that person in a in a non-confrontational, just benign sort of way. I think you're wrong, because I am one of the people that did have your minds changed. Have your minds changed? About what? I was brought up a bigot, born to a racist. My dad was not... Uh, he was not a racist in the sense that he hated black people. Uh, I, would ta- I was taught that they were different, that they had, uh, they were less than. They had, they were, didn't work hard, they didn't have family values, a whole bunch of things that are not true. So mainly I was, I was taught that black people didn't think like we did. They didn't have the same set of emotions. Wow. And, uh, and then our president was assassinated and spent the weekend watching the, the funeral. And the streets of Washington were lined with black people 
who, like everybody else in the country, were crying their eyes out. And it didn't make any sense to me because those people didn't think like I did. They didn't feel like I did. They were different than me. Wow. And man, they certainly did look different. Certainly seemed like they had the same emotions. And I, and I was I was with a uh, group of people who had uh, a, a buddy. His parents had were civil rights activists. They'd, they'd been in the South on the marches, on the buses. We got in a conversation about race, and they took me to task. And uh, said, uh, I used the term colored, I remember using the term colored people. And uh, they jumped right down my throat and uh, explained why that wasn't okay. And uh, it changed my mind. There is, you, first you were already primed. So something had already changed. And that was not you talking with somebody of, that, disagreed, that you disagreed with. I would imagine that you are also of a more inquisitive and logical mindset than, than the vast majority of the populace already. So it's not, yes, there are people that can be reached that way. I think that there are I think, the, I think that the best way to reach and change people's mind is through art, like the art of showing those people on the street. And I would consider that an art form. Newscasting is an art form. Movies are an art form. Literature is an art form. Paintings are art. You know, these things that come from an objective. I'm not objective. I'm not, I, have, I have a position, and my position is opposite of yours when I'm talking to somebody of that nature. So therefore, we're, we're already butting heads. You know, there's there's no chance that I'm going to be looked at as anything other than the opposition. Art it can be objective, like you when you saw those people, people that you didn't realize had these. You know, that that's a whole different tactic of changing somebody's mind or bringing something forward, and like in somebody's like that's not what we're talking about. You know, we're talking about having a conversation with somebody that you are aware disagrees with you for the sake of having that conversation and I, you know i think that the vast majority of people who have those strong of opinions that's another you know we're talking about people who not that are just you know i don't think i don't i don't think i don't think it works and i'm not saying the conversation is not worth having and i there's a certain willingness to accept other information that there there's a lot of people that just they're they're they don't want to consider other information. And they're not going to, no matter, most likely no matter how it's presented. Art being maybe the one exception where they'll see something that's like, wow, that's a person. Wow, you know, wow, we're killing kids over in the, over in the Middle East. You know, something, you know, like, wow, there's a person that lit themselves on fire to stop be very impressed if you were able to convince one person, one person to come into those rooms, or one, you know, it's the, it's the, well, you know, you don't always convince people. A lot of times you just find common ground. I have a friend who's a radical Second Amendment person. He's he talks all the time about the government's coming to take my guns, and I mean, he sounds like a freak. Uh, nobody wants to talk to him about guns because he's got such a radical you and uh, we had a conversation about guns and I opened up with the fact that uh, you know I'm a gun owner 
Uh, I was given my first gun when I was 12 years old. Uh, I was not allowed to use the gun until I uh, went through a gun safety course with the NRA. Uh, and then got a hunting license. Uh, allowed me to hunt. And so we had this long conversation about about gun safety and uh, turns out that we both see have a opinion that using the automobile as a, as a model for gun control uh, would be a reasonable thing. Uh, in other words, the, the gun has to be registered, it has to be uh, something equivalent to an inspection, it has to be properly put away, it's safe. Uh, you can't use a gun until you've, you've taken a, a gun safety course. A whole bunch of things that, that basically is the same with it. So now you're talking about somebody who's reasonable just because other people like. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't appear reasonable to other people. Now, if he has to go to a ballot box and vote for a uh, a, a bill that would say, "Okay, we're going to treat guns like cars," uh, he might very well say yes. But I can sympathize with why he probably comes off to a bunch of leftists as crazy. There's a lot of people that would have thought that I was crazy for saying that we should legalize all drugs. Because there's a similar argument for drugs and guns. It's, it's not necessarily a problem with the substance, it's a problem with the way that the substance is being used or who's using it. And you can, you can legislate against that, but I think it's extremely dangerous waters to start making those things illegal. We saw what happened with drugs. We shouldn't do it with guns. And that can sound absurd to people. And, uh, you know, I'm very reasonable. I'm, I'm willing to consider other, you know. But at the end of the day, you know, why that person's so emotional about a subject is that is, is, is you're taking away somebody's personal freedom to, to that something that they enjoy, something that they see as a tool, something that they see as a, as a, a personal piece of themselves that is for protection and for... for a, a, Engagement, engaging with the outside world. I mean, it's they—they they have every right to that. They have every right to be really pissed off that people would think that they should be taken away from them. I mean, that's that's something that they deserve and should be up in arms about. Oh, you know, and if more people were like him, the world would probably be a better place. But that's a reasonable person. That's you know. Like, who, if he's willing to say, hey, maybe maybe we should guarantee that people know how to use something before we give it to them, perhaps that is the state's responsibility. That's That tells me that that person is not just like, well, you know, I need, I need guns in case the black people come. Like, those are two different types of people. And I'm not telling I'm talking about the latter, not necessarily the former. Well, I think I think the the point that we're talking about is that you can take people who are unreasonable to one another hmm. and sit down and lo and behold, they end up having a reasonable conversation and find common ground. And I think that's what we've lost. We're not willing to have that difficult conversation with someone who doesn't share our own uh, strongly held beliefs. Uh, and so we just get more and more polarized. And 
When do you think that happened? Like, what do you? I don't know. My understanding is it wasn't that way. It wasn't that way. Didn't seem to be that way. You know. Yeah, maybe my view of history is is warped, but I don't think it was that way when I was growing up. I'd say it's news media. That sixty minutes was the first news company to ever turn a profit. That was, I believe, in the seventies. I could be wrong on that. Fact check that, but there's two different conversations going on. I mean, if you if you flip to Fox News and to MSNBC and this and into that, like any any given day, you see just two versions of reality, and. It's really hard to have a meaningful conversation with somebody who disagrees with you when there's two versions of reality. There's like and that's that's really where I think it. it really well, try it. Well, do you have any uh, any other topics you'd like to discuss? Anything you'd like to tell people to look at, or any questions for us? I think we've uh, hit a lot of them. No, I really don't. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on Occasionally Interesting. Yes. It, was a, it was a pleasure delving into the depths with you. And it's very nice how... Uh, and thank you for making a guest appearance on our last episode where you, you definitely um, had something special of, of, of it allowing people permission to be uh, vulnerable and real. That's really a, it's a really great gift. Thank you for bringing that into the world. Into our conversations. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.